everyone. Welcome to Short Circuit Live at SMU. Thank you to SMU's Federalist Society for hosting the event. Uh, we have an amazing selection of cases to discuss, ranging from a Second Amendment right to carry guns all the way to a First Amendment right to observe the police with bankruptcy and FDA regulations in the middle. So let me quickly introduce the panelists and we will get right to it. Don Tittle is a civil rights attorney in Dallas, representing plaintiffs in police abuse cases. Given how difficult it is to sue government officials for damages, I have no idea how you make a living. <laughs> Yet, Don is very successful at this. He has been involved in many of the largest and most significant cases involving civil rights abuses occurring in Dallas, Fort Worth, and throughout, throughout Texas. Maybe Don successful because he understands the inside game. Prior to becoming a civil rights lawyer and also a lecturer here at SMU, Don worked as an assistant DA in the Dallas District Attorney's Office. Welcome, Don. All right. Thank you for having me on you. <laughs> well, Will Langley. Uh, well, first of all, he is uh, my best friend from law school. Uh, Aww, he was thanks. also my worst nightmare since he beat me in every class uh, while often working in what amounted to full-time jobs. Uh, he secured a job offer from one of the leading national law firms after his first semester of being at UT, uh, which of course made me even more infuriated with his brilliance. Uh, Will now works as a litigator at Winston & Strawn, uh, representing clients in complex commercial litigation matters from investigation through trial. Um, as a payback for all my misery, I assigned Will to talk about a bankruptcy case. <laughs> <laughs> well played. <laughs> While making sure that you all don't fall asleep. Welcome, Will. <laughs> Thank you for the impossible task, Anya. <laughs> it's good to be back. Zach Faircloth is a resident genius here at SMU. Uh, he graduated from SMU Law in 2020, where he was in the Order of the Coif, the Editor-in-Chief of SMU Law Review, and the Vice President of Events for the Federalist Society. After SMU, Zach clerked for Judge Reed O'Connor here in the Northern District of Texas, and then for Judge Kyle Duncan on the Fifth Circuit. Uh, since completing his circuit clerkship this summer, Zach has worked as an associate at Gibson Dunn. Welcome, Zach. Thank you so much for having me. <laughs> well, uh, let's get right to it. Don, uh, could you introduce the first case for us, United States versus Rahimi out of the Fifth Circuit? Okay, sure. The first case, United States versus Rahimi, is uh, an interesting case because it's a Second Amendment case. It's significant because it is a circuit court's first attempt at applying the framework uh, that was set up in a landmark Supreme Court decision from about six months earlier, the Bruin case. And so that's the significance of Rahimi. So in that case, the Fifth Circuit takes the first crack at applying what, they, what the Supreme Court said should be the framework. And so let's start with uh, a little bit about Mr. Rahimi, Zaki Rahimi. Please do. He was a he was, in, in some respects, he was a proverbial one-man crime wave. Uh, he, for about two months of his life anyway, in December of 2020 and uh, early January 2021, he uh, committed any number of criminal acts. He, um, and usually it involved a firearm. Uh, he, he sold drugs. He uh, 
after selling drugs to the buyer, he then fired several shots into the house of the buyer. He then, uh, the very next day, he's involved in an auto accident. And uh, he promptly gets out of his car and starts shooting at the person that, had, that he'd had the accident with. He then flees the scene. Then he comes back. Then he starts shooting more shots into the car. So uh, presumably the driver wasn't in it. But anyway, so he's, um, he's quick, quick with a gun, as they say. Uh, he takes a couple of weeks off and <laughs> of his criminal activity. And uh, right before Christmas, he fires shots at a constable. Um, he then sort of the, the final act was at, at just after the new year in early January. He's with a friend at a Whataburger and the friend's credit card is declined. And that really sets Mr. Rahimi off. And he starts shooting his gun up into the air. All right. So. Uh, Understandable. He, he was, I'm going to assume he was doing the same thing on New Year's Eve, but that's not part of the record. But anyway, he, he, did, he liked to fire his weapon. So um, I think, you know, Mr. Rahimi is a guy who certainly most people would say he very much deserved to be charged with a crime. And I think most people would say he very much should not be possessing a weapon, given his criminal history. So he was identified as the suspect of these various crimes by the police, and uh, they executed a warrant on his residence, and they locate a rifle and a pistol. So they also learn at that time that he is the subject of a civil protective order as a result of domestic abuse. Uh, in addition to his many uh, criminal, uh, much criminal conduct, he also was, had allegedly um, assaulted his ex-girlfriend. And so a protective order had been entered against him. And in the protective order, it included findings of uh, family violence, uh, occurrence of family violence, and a likelihood of future family violence. And that was following a hearing and following notice. So... Um, he's charged with uh, a, a federal the federal crime of possessing a gun if you're the subject of a protective order involving domestic abuse. That's a, one of the prohibitions against carrying a weapon that's uh, codified, and uh, along with things like if you're a convicted felon, you can't possess a weapon, and there's a whole list of other things, and we're going to talk about some of those other things because they get real interesting as we... Yeah look at these cases, but among the other things, just to mention, uh, you, you may or may not even know this, uh, if you're dishonorably discharged from the armed forces, uh, that section says you're prohibited from possessing a, a firearm. Uh, if you're in the country unlawfully, you are, uh, it, it is illegal to possess a firearm. So there's a number of these things listed in 18 uh, USC 922G, and so Mr. Rahimi was charged with uh, the one involving b possessing a weapon if you're the subject of a, domestic, of a domestic abuse protective order. And so the question before the Fifth Circuit is, should a person subject to a domestic violence restraining order be prohibited from possessing firearms, essentially? Right. And the, what does the Fifth Circuit tell us? The constitutionality is the, is the question. Uh, they acknowledge he's... he's he, he, you know, not a great guy, at least at that point in his life. But the, the uh, Rahimi then applies 
the framework set out in Bruin, which I think it's worth taking just a brief moment to look at what that, what that means, why that's significant. So Supreme Court issued about six months prior to Rahimi being heard in the Fifth Circuit, they had issued this first uh, big opinion on the Second Amendment in more than a decade. And in that, the Bruin case, they, A, for, first of all, as a practical matter, they struck down a concealed carry restriction uh, on a, involving a New York law, making it more difficult to carry, to, to conceal, uh, carry a gun in public uh, in New York. You had to prove a special need uh, in addition to just that you wanted it for self-defense. So Bruin, A, made it unlawful to, for New York to have a law like that, but it also said, importantly, that the framework we're going to use to analyze any case involving a restriction on a firearm is uh, a, you're going to ask the question of whether this restriction is uh, historically is consistent with with historical tradition. Basically, is there historical precedent for this type of restriction? And what Bruin says is that's the only question you're asking. Right. So between. Um, uh, Bruin and, say, Heller from about 12 or 14 years earlier, there'd been a they'd developed some body of law where you could ask that you would do this historical analysis, but also courts could consider uh, how the restriction might affect the common good. And, the tailoring. Right. The and, and so Bruin says, no more of that. We're going with this pure historical analysis. Is there a precedent for this restriction looking back at history, especially during the time of the founding. So that's Bruin. So Rahimi is the first circuit that really gets to apply those facts, and they apply it to Mr. Mr. Rahimi's case. And what do they say? So they say that it, they, after going through this historical analysis, they decide that it is unconstitutional that the, the uh, Section 922G8, which prohibits gun possession for someone that's subject to a protective order, that it is, un, it is unconstitutional to have that type of restriction. And they say that after going through a lengthy analysis of what they call these historical analogs. Um, Which is I, the government basically provided about five different examples of how this would have been consistent. These kind of prohibitions would have been consistent right. um, uh, with what happened at the founding. But the Fifth Circuit does not find either even one of them persuasive. The, the Fifth Circuit goes through each and says either, you know, this doesn't apply or this was too more to a class of people, not specific. Um, they acknowledge that one was at least similarly relevant, but ultimately, you know, that involved you had to post a bond if you, I guess, if you happened to do something with your firearm that, uh, as opposed to actually forfeiting your right. So they consider that not to be relevant. But uh, in the end, held that there was no historical analog for this type of a restriction, therefore unconstitutional. So they strike down the, strike down the statute that says that individuals can't carry weapons if they're subject to restraining order. If they're subject to a protective order uh, for domestic abuse and in the law, it says even, even in those instances, it would only apply if there was a hearing and the person had received notice. And in the case involving Rahimi, there was a hearing. Um, there were these findings, like I mentioned, of family violence occurrence and likely to occur in the future. So um, 
in some ways, uh, the protections against getting a protective order against you, at least in Texas, would be greater than, say, a, a restriction that you can't carry a firearm if you're under indictment, which really just requires a simple finding of probable cause. Another one would be a bond. If you're on, you, you're, um, you've been charged with a felony and you're on a bond, a judge could say, you can't carry a weapon. That's probably as routine as it gets. It's as far away from a hearing um, following fair notice as you can get. But there is some suggestion in Rahimi that, that they draw a real distinction between criminal and civil proceedings. So there's, I think there's a suggestion that uh, if it's tied to the criminal process, the forfeiture of the, your right to carry a weapon, that that might pass muster. But if it's something like a civil commitment or uh, red flag laws or, like I say, the idea that someone's been dishonorably discharged from the military and they lose their right to carry a weapon, I think those are in extreme jeopardy, at least in the Fifth Circuit. So there is a separate opinion. Um, tell us about that uh, by Judge Ho. Okay, the concurrence, well, and, and you know, Judge Ho does, first of all, he uh, acknowledges that he's very proud to be a part of the uh, first circuit case to apply the framework uh, that was set out in the Bruin case. Um, he really makes a strong uh, distinction between a restriction on your right to possess firearm as a result of the criminal process versus the civil process. I mean, that, that's really what I took to be the most important thing out of his concurrence. He draws that extreme distinction. Uh, whether that'll be followed, hard to say. I'm, you know, whether Rahini would even be followed in, by other circuits would really come down to whether when they do this historical analysis, they reach the same result. And Judge Ho also uh, goes out of his way to say that I am not saying that, you know, his girlfriend, for example, doesn't have a right to be free from his act, right? What he is saying is that there are other ways to ensure um, that, you know, he is not a danger to her. But it doesn't mean that he doesn't have a Second Amendment right, right, right. to he, carry about. Judge Ho does, he, he, he's, he makes a point to say that there are already criminal laws on the book that are going to discourage the type of behavior that Rahini was involved in. And, and so, therefore, that's going to act as a deterrent to that type of activity, as a, and that, therefore, I, I presume he's saying that you don't need these extra restrictions on a Second Amendment right. Zach, you want to add anything? Yeah, I, I just think this is going to be really interesting, especially when you think about, so this was 922G8, right? Is that the right statute? And 922G8s do come up in federal court from time to time. But the reality is most of these come down as 922G1 charges. Uh, and I'm sure Judge Starr could tell you that not a lot of 922G1s are accompanied by deep originalist briefing in the district court. Um, but guess what? On the back end of this case, that's that's going to get argued a lot. So I'm very interested to see what some of these district court judges are going to do when they get these 922G1 charges that are challenged based on Bruin and Al Rahimi. It's interesting, this kind of... Um uh, analysis where you rely so much on history and like you Don mentioned it's it's by no means a guarantee that another judge looking at history would come up would reach the same conclusion 
Yeah, it's really a, it's 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 a pretty remarkable framework to set up to think that judges are going to be able to engage in that type of historical analysis. I'd be, you know, there's a certain, I think, certain humor almost if you think about, you know, when a court, when, when, when the lower courts get these cases where there's a restriction, what are they going to do? Are they, who is, they're going to say, go, you know, let's go do a research of the history books. I mean, who are they going to get to do that? I mean, if you're a, you know, perhaps if they've hired a history major, it's going to, you know, the person with a history major is finally going to have, uh, a purpose for their <laughs> degree, but uh, you know, it just uh, um, seems like uh, every court could basically just reach a different conclusion on almost the same set of facts. It gets a little bit at uh, uh, Justice Breyer's criticism, uh, dissent in Bruin, right, where yep. he said lawyers are not historians. That's not how lawyers think. So. Um, uh, we are taught to see both sides and argue both sides um, and be advocates uh, rather than just analyzing the facts uh, in a straight manner. So, um, and, and looking at history as just a, a, a particular one way to look at it. So it'll be interesting to see what judges do with this. Yeah, it's going to be very interesting. I mean, there's so many ways, like I say, could, uh, Rahini could be followed by other circuits. It might not be. It could easily not be setting up uh, a conflict. And then, of course, just like you go down the list of these individual prohibitions, and it's, it's not hard to see how some could fall, some could stay. I think the, the one that Zach mentioned about convicted felons, I think would be the one that's most likely to stand. I mean, the, um, I think even Judge uh, Kavanaugh and Judge Roberts in their concurrence in Bruin make a point to say, that some of these that have long-standing tradition, they're not intending to interfere with those. That would have been my interpretation, but I think they're all going to be challenged, like you say. Mm -hmm. I, I think that's exactly right, I, and I, I, don't, I don't anticipate that a circuit court will necessarily go there, but there will be a district court out there that strikes down 922 G1, and then they're going to have to grapple with it. Yeah. The one last thing I'll mention about the opinion, it's kind of interesting. Um, um, it mentions that the Fifth Circuit was the first circuit court, even before Heller, to basically say that there is an individual right uh, to carry a weapon. So the Fifth Circuit, in many respects, seems to be sort of uh, paving the way for Second Amendment jurisprudence and is very aware of that. Yeah, they are. I'm not sure, though, I, you know, with, with so many states having laws against being able to carry a weapon if you're the subject of a protective order on this, on a, you know, family violence. And, and, you know, let's face it, that's the kind of thing like a convicted felon that m many, many people would say that person should not be allowed to possess a weapon. I'm going to be surprised if other circuits go the same way as Rahini. Yeah, there is a quote there that Rahimi is neither responsible nor law-abiding. Yeah, yeah, that's, <laughs> he was really a lucky, his, he was quite fortunate in timing because it, his conviction was first affirmed and he got the fortunate break of having Bruin decided within a few weeks and then his, his conviction got uh, vacated and now overturned. So yeah. he's, he's had quite a run of luck, hopefully <laughs> takes a different course. All right, let's move on to the next case from the Second Amendment to bankruptcy. Uh, you're welcome, Will. Thank you for saying bankruptcy one more time, just to make sure everyone's sleeping. Um, so uh, thank you, Anya. Um, 
Yeah, so NRAY LTL management. If you're not familiar with this case, uh, it doesn't sound terribly interesting, right? LTL management doesn't sound familiar. You've never heard of them, and that's because they didn't exist until just recently. You may, however, have heard of Johnson & Johnson. And Johnson & Johnson has a little bit more of an interesting and a much longer history. And they produce consumer goods that you're all familiar with, I assume. Uh, Judge Ambrose, in the opinion in Ray LTL, referenced Band-Aid, Tylenol, Johnson Johnson's baby powder, which is, of course, the center of this discussion. Uh, we've all heard of those, right? Band-Aid and Tylenol got me through my childhood. So, um, you know, uh, credit where credit is due. But in recent years, it's, um, these cases have arisen dealing specifically with Johnson & Johnson baby powder and another related product. But let's focus, we'll try to keep it simple because bankruptcy is complicated enough without me doing it any further. So Johnson & Johnson um, makes and sells baby powder, and they have done so for many, many years. Recently, people started to um, observe a potential connection between Johnson & Johnson's product and various illnesses, including ovarian cancer or uh, mesothelioma. And it turns out that some studies have shown and I'm being careful how I say all of this because this is all you know, disputed, but uh, various juries have reached conclusions about this, but there appears to have been traces of asbestos in the talc that comprised Johnson & Johnson's baby powder. Why am I telling you about all of this when we're talking about a bankruptcy case? Well, turns out a lot of people use Johnson & Johnson's baby powder, and a lot of people um, brought claims against Johnson & Johnson related to that baby powder. And that's where our story kind of begins because for many, many years, there, there wasn't a lot out there. It wasn't, a, you know, this mass tort litigation regarding the baby powder was not a thing. And then in about 2010, that all started to change. And even though they had some several unsuccessful lawsuits against them, uh, people kept coming, lawyers kept bringing these claims. Uh, the, Plaintiff's bar is nothing if not determined. And eventually, they kind of hit it big with a case called Ingham. And in the Ingham case, there were a number of plaintiffs, and they originally had, a, I believe, a six, over $6 billion verdict um, that was reduced, sorry, $4.69 billion verdict that was reduced to $2.24 billion uh, in damages for injuries related to the baby powder. And at that point, Johnson & Johnson sort of saw the writing on the wall, so to speak. And they thought, well, if that's just one case with 20 plaintiffs, what else is out there? It looks like there might be a lot more coming. This wave might not be over anytime soon. And so you can imagine if you were the GC of Johnson & Johnson coming in to report that the US Supreme Court has denied cert on our appeal of this $2 billion verdict. Um, and it looks like the, the other lawsuits aren't stopping. But we have a, a potential solution here. And this is where this case is, is interesting because it shows, as Anya was talking about, how lawyers think versus maybe how historians or others think about things. Lawyers are problem solvers. And this is a problem that Johnson & Johnson was facing is how to deal with this wave of litigation and the potential uh, billions upon billions of dollars in judgments. And so they found some creative law 
in Texas. It's pejoratively called the Texas Two-Step. <laughs> so this is a third circuit case, but it involves a Texas Two-Step. So right, the, that's the connection. Thank you for bringing that up. And Anya, <laughs> feel free to bring up anything that I overlook, because there's so many details that I'm trying not to overwhelm anybody and trying to stay focused on what's important, but that's a good point. This case originated in uh, North Carolina and then was moved to the Third Circuit, which is the home of Johnson & Johnson. And so that's where they, they ended up in New Jersey dealing with this case. Um, but the Texas Two-Step refers to a fairly complicated procedure that I'm not gonna go down the weeds on uh, because I'm frankly not qualified. Uh, and you're not interested. You mean you don't know how to do a Texas two-step? <laughs> I don't know how to do the Broken actual Texas two-step, <laughs> nor the bankruptcy procedure uh, or the re reorganization procedure. But suffice it to say, Johnson & Johnson took what was one entity, and again, I'm glossing over a lot because there are various Johnson & Johnson consumer products entities and health and things like that. But I'm gonna stick with Judge Ambrose here and say, just called the original entity Johnson & Johnson. And Johnson & Johnson turned into new Johnson & Johnson and LTL. And LTL management got the, uh, the short end of the stick in the deal, you might think, because they took all of the liabilities related to the tout claims. Whereas new Johnson & Johnson got all of these great products that have been selling for hundreds of or decades and you know, over 100 years. But to be fair, New Johnson & Johnson didn't leave LTL management without you know, anything to show for it. its uh, new existence. They actually promised that we'll make good on the, the judgments for these tout claims. So if you lose in court, you know, if you get all these judgment against, judgments against you, come see us and we'll make it right. And that's, you know, that sounds like a pretty good thing, right? Because the alternative would be spinning off LTL and leaving them out there to handle all these tout claims. And then when people come to claim their, you know, to enforce their judgments, there's nothing there to be had because LTL doesn't sell anything. It doesn't generate any revenue. It exists for the sole purpose of filing bankruptcy. And that's what this, this kind of this case really becomes about is the, the bankruptcy proceeding. So LTL was meant to take all of these liabilities from these many, many tout cases and to go through bankruptcy proceedings so that they could have sort of an orderly resolution of all of these cases and, and get that all squared away while Johnson & Johnson kept on selling their products. And they were transparent about this, right? So again, we're not, when I'm telling you about all this, I'm trying to stay as neutral as possible, just like the judge did. I'm not assuming anybody's got um, ulterior motives other than the ones that they're stating. But basically, LTL was created for that purpose. Let's take all the liability from the tout claims, put it in this entity, that entity will file for bankruptcy, and then the bankruptcy court will handle the proceedings and we'll get all of this resolved in an orderly fashion. And that's what they tried. And you might think that the, when I tell you that the Third Circuit uh, dismissed the bankruptcy case and allowed all of the, uh, by the way, I, I forgot a kind of key point here. Bankruptcy, one of the most important things about a bankruptcy is when you file bankruptcy, you get a stay, right? You get protection from a lot of different claims and from people pursuing judgments against you. So this stay went into effect when LTL filed the bankruptcy. When the Third Circuit reversed and dismissed that bankruptcy, that stay is over. And so now all of these cases are free to open back up. And we can go 
go into some details about how much Johnson & Johnson is spending in defense costs and paying judgments, but it, it's a big deal that that happened. And you might wonder if there was something about the Texas two-step that came into play here, if, the, if Judge Ambrose was suspicious about that or whatever, but it actually just turns out it's, it's really simple. You know that old saying, it's never too soon to file for bankruptcy? No, no, there's a reason that you've never heard of that saying, because it can be too soon to file for bankruptcy. And that's what Judge Ambrose told LTL management. He basically said, look, you're looking at all of these forecasts of how much litigation is coming your way, how many judgments you're gonna be paying. Uh, that may all be the case, but as things stand today, you don't, you're not in bankruptcy. You're not a threatened organization. And that's simply because Johnson & Johnson was standing behind LTL. So this sort of clever arrangement by also making sure that they didn't get into a, the, the F word of fraudulent transfer, uh, Johnson & Johnson actually made sure that LTL couldn't go into bankruptcy, at least according to Judge Ambrose on the Third Circuit. So if that wasn't too confusing a road down there, is, is, is anybody tracking anything that's going on at all? Okay, I'm getting some head nods. This is not good podcasting to ask you that way. But, um, but that's, so this case in, in some ways is very simple and very straightforward. You can't file for bankruptcy until you're bankrupt. You can't file for bankruptcy saying, well, I think that we're gonna get a lot of bad you know, judgments coming down the road, so let's go ahead and start this process, get the bankruptcy underway. Judge Ambrose said, that's not good faith. He wasn't saying they didn't act in good faith by creating a company and entity to handle this and to go into the bankruptcy. He's just saying it's not good faith to file before you actually have these claims against you. So let's let the, the facts play out a little bit more and we'll see where it goes. Um, depending on who you ask, it's either that simple or there's something much more complex going on here with this, uh, the viability of the Texas two-step and, and this sort of non-traditional debtor where, um, Okay, so I'm gonna, I'm gonna try this, it's maybe risky. Do we have any Rick and Morty fans out, out there? All right, we have Zach, he's a Rick and Morty Okay. Fan. You're on the record, on the panel. Zach, all right? So, so we'll, we'll at least dialogue about this. Sure. <laughs> and tell me how you feel about the accuracy of this. Again, okay. without talking about anybody's motives, do you recall the episode where Rick and Morty go to the spa planet? Yes. Okay, um, if you recall that episode, it's... Um, We'll post the link on our no, website. No, no, that's a show notes, right? That, yeah, you can find show it. Show notes. You can find it out there. But uh, so Rick and Morty is this uh, duo, grandfather and grandson duo. I, I'm not going to explain who they Rick and Morty are. But long story short, they go to this spa planet and they have all of the like bad feelings flushed out of them, and it relaxes them. It's supposed to be like a, a great spa treatment, but instead of just having all of that stuff washed away down the drain, it actually reconstitutes as a horrible version of Rick and a horrible version of Morty. And that's kind of what this made me think about a little bit with this case is that, you know, there's sort of Johnson For the Johnson record, is, Zach is nodding, he agrees. Yes, yes thank yes. you. Feel free to agree verbally. <laughs> I, I totally agree. Um, <laughs> but that's, you know, that's an interesting, this whole process of taking all of these liabilities that, you know, are gonna overwhelm this company and you know, Johnson & Johnson is a going concern, right? They're still selling Band-Aids, they're still selling Tylenol, uh, they're still selling all these products that you've heard of, and so they didn't wanna go through the whole company to go through this major restructuring, so they created another company to handle the restructuring and said, like I said, we'll stand behind you. 
But of course, Judge Ambrose decided that when you have access to the ATM PIN number for your parent company, um, you're not bankrupt because you can always just go get cash when you need it. And so that's where this case ended up. Long story short, I'll stop it there so that we can ask any follow-up questions if there are any uh, interesting avenues to pursue, if any of that made sense. So basically, the judge says that uh, there is no financial distress, right? And because there is no financial distress, um, you can't file for bankruptcy. Uh, the Judge Ambrose kind of recognizes the irony of this, right? Yeah. And uh, can you talk about that a little? He does. He recognizes exactly the problem that I said less articulately than Judge Ambrose. And so after all this, I really think of all this as sort of an appetizer or to whet your appetite to go read the opinion because there's a lot there, right? I mean, this is a mass torts case. There's a lot interesting and, you know, going on with the, the mass tort claims themselves and then the bankruptcy and all of the other ramifications. And as far of all as bankruptcy this. opinions go, it's a fun read. Right. I wouldn't even, <laughs> let, me, let me just not even qualify it that way. I will say it's a pellucid piece of writing, a uh, piece of legal writing without qualifications. I think Judge Ambrose right. wrote an outstanding opinion. Agree or disagree, it's well written, it's very clear, and it, it's, it, trust me, you've already read much worse <laughs> material that's uh, part of your law school curriculum. But uh, going back to the irony question, the, um, the irony is, of course, like I said, J&J created this entity, Johnson Johnson created this entity for the purpose of going through bankruptcy and handling all of these claims but by virtue of not sort of sending it out there with nothing and saying, you know, attack this shell company, we're, they said we're actually going to stand behind it and we're actually going to pay the claims. By doing that, they then prevented it from going into bankruptcy. So the irony is that they defeated the purpose by actually following through and, and offering to, uh, to stand behind or to guarantee, you know, any of the judgments related to the tout claims. But of course, had they not created that trust? Had they not created... Well, had they not yeah, created the, the payments or set up the, the assurances, then you'd be back at that F word, fraudulent transfer, right? We have some other F words to talk about, in my opinion, on qualified immunity, but I'll save that for later. Wow, with an advertisement like that. No. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, so that, that's a great point. I mean, this is kind of a... It's, it's just a fascinating scenario. There's so much to explore here. We don't have time to even begin to get into all of the complexities of this. Like I said, I hope I whet your appetite a little bit and didn't leave you profoundly confused. Or if I left you profoundly confused, let me assure you that Judge Ambrose explains it much better than I do. So go read this case um, and you'll, you'll learn a lot about bankruptcy, about corporate restructuring and mass torts. And it's actually a pretty interesting read, so. All right. With that, I think we should go to another fascinating topic, and that's FDA regulations. Yes. Uh, Anya shouldn't have any, any grudge with me, but she gave me the <laughs> FDA case, so let's go. Um, I'm going to start by quoting from the Federal Reporter. So these are the books up in the library, right? Um, at 41F4 at 433 in the Federal Reporters, quote, Jimmy the Juice Man Strawberry Astronaut and Suicide Bunny Bunny Season. That's in your law reporters now. And that's the case we're going to talk about. It's wages and white line investments versus the FDA. So if you want a kick, I highly recommend listening to this oral argument where Judge Jones opens the questions with, do you really think we don't vape? Wow. She probably does. 
So what happened here is back in the early 2010s, uh, vaping started to catch on, right? Um, there was a push to regulate it by the um, FDA. And in the past, the FDA had asserted some authority to regulate tobacco. Well, any of you who will take administrative law here will ultimately read the case, FDA versus Brown and Williamson Tobacco Corp., which effectively said that, no, FDA, you can't just reach out and grab tobacco as a drug. Uh, there's got to be some congressional mandate for that. Well, Congress responded to that in 2009 by passing the Family Smoking Prevention and Tobacco Control Act, or the TCA. There are about 15,000 different acronyms in this. I'm not going to venture to try to name all of them. So the TCA is the governing statute here that controls how tobacco products are approved with the FDA. So what happened here is our vaping companies uh, petitioned with the FDA under the TCA for uh, approval of their vaping products. And when they went to the, when they went to the FDA, uh, what the FDA had done is set, set aside a set of rules on how they would get approved. We're gonna look at your marketing plan. We're gonna understand the effects of your vaping product on the broader community. Uh, they did this through uh, obviously promulgating rules and regulations. They did this through guidance memos. They did this through public statements to all the vaping companies and said, this is how we're going to get all of these vaping companies previously unregulated into the FDA regulated space. And we're gonna do this all by September, 2020 which is a relatively tight turnaround. So fast forward, over a million applications flow in. I believe they're called PMTAs. Uh, I thought you're done with the acronyms. Uh, I know, I'm sorry. Uh, it's, my, it's my signpost to remember where I'm at. The PMTAs, so over a million of these fly in and the FDA says, oh no. OMG. Um, or OMG, <laughs> for those following still. And the FDA has really no way to efficiently process these based on how they've previously told every manufacturer out there how they would actually process these applications, namely a very individualized look at each individual application and the marketing materials and the gigabytes and gigabytes and gigabytes of data that each one of these applications have with them. Um, so instead of simply going through and individually approving each one, they issued an internal memo. Uh, the internal memo said, we are going to try to get through these in batch. We will look for certain check boxes to see if the boxes are there. If the boxes are not there in the application, we'll deny the application. That's it. So what happens? Over 50,000 applications are batch denied. Uh, and of these 50,000 applications, many, many of them filed lawsuits in different circuit courts across the, or different district courts across the country, uh, asking for relief, saying, hey, we were told that this was going to be the process, but instead they gave us that. This is not that. And so we get to federal court and in the federal courts, we evaluate agency action under the Administrative Procedure Act, the APA. And under the APA, <laughs> this is tough. This is really tough. Under, under the APA, uh, the standard for review is arbitrary and capricious. So did, did the agency behave in an arbitrary and capricious way? So all of that is the backdrop to this. One thing I think is really important for you as law students, and I know we have a podcast audience too, law students out there, is in law school, you're, you're taught to sort of parse through what 
all those things mean and figure out what kind of what the legal answer is to that and how we navigate the legal landscape. Well, the beauty is there's much more to that. There's actually a lot of procedure and believe it or not, judges are people. I know that's shocking. You're not taught that in law school, but judges are people. And so For each now. one's going to have their own personality. <laughs> and so that's where we get to the fifth circuit. Uh, this came up through district court, got to the Fifth Circuit on what's called a motions panel. Uh, at the motions panel, they get a first chance to stay whatever the district court did. Do they let it go or do they, do they stop it? Uh, and in the motions panel, Judge Oldham writing with, uh, I believe, Judge Elrod and Judge Wilson said, yeah, the FDA got this wrong. You can't just, you know, slip a roux and change the process on, on these vaping companies without telling them ahead of time. They submitted what you asked and then you didn't review it. Fast forward to what's called a merits panel uh, at the Fifth Circuit, where the panel of Judge Haynes, Judge Costa, my now colleague, and Judge Edith Jones uh, heard the case, and they came out the other way. Judge Haynes writing with Judge Costa joining said, whoa, 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 not so fast. Yeah, they didn't follow exactly what they said they were going to do, but they followed it for the most part. And, you know, we... We know that Congress delegated this power to the FDA because the FDA is the experts, and we'll defer to the experts on this. And Judge Jones wrote, in her typical fashion, a blistering dissent, saying, no way. Uh, she opens up with, there are six of us who have looked at this, and four have said, yeah, this is, this is incredibly problematic. Uh, and she goes through and parses through what exactly the agency had promised, what exactly the agency delivered, and why that departure was arbitrary and capricious. Just a few weeks ago, uh, the Fifth Circuit, listening to Judge Jones, decided to take this case on banc. Uh, they're not alone because this is going to be an emerging circuit split. The Sixth Circuit has touched this in breeze smoke. Uh, there's another case out of the Eleventh Circuit in Beattie. And then there's another case of the D.C. Circuit, Prohibition Juice Co., my favorite, uh, <laughs> where Judge Katsis writes a concurrence and says, hey, uh, there's an emerging circuit split here. Maybe, maybe Supreme Court, you should take a look at that. Uh, so what's going to happen is in May, the entire Fifth Circuit is going to sit down and hear this argument, uh, and they will ultimately decide whether or not, uh, yes, the FDA, they, they, may, they may have not behaved perfectly, but it was within the realm of not arbitrary and capricious, or no, this is certainly arbitrary and capricious. Uh, FDAs will ultimately have to go back and review 50,000 applications. Um, my guess is if they take a panel opinion on Bach at the behest of Judge Jones, you're likely going to see the Fifth Circuit say, no way, FDA. <laughs> and this will ultimately end up at the, at the uh, Supreme Court. As it's, it's got a Judge Jones dissent. Judge Kethledge has dissented in the Sixth Circuit. Judge Katzis has said something about it in the D.C. Circuit. We've got in the Eleventh Circuit, Judge Pryor, Chief Judge Pryor has something to say on it. So this is getting a lot of big opinions from a lot of big names in the conservative legal movement. And I expect that you'll see this at the Supreme Court within the next couple of years. Uh, you heard it here first, I think. <laughs> I'll just throw in and say you'll probably also hear the Johnson & Johnson appeal in front of the yeah. Supreme Court very shortly. <laughs> So the J&J uh, case, uh, there was um, a non-bank petition filed, and uh, judges ordered a response. So we're waiting on that. In this case, unbank petition was granted, and like Zach mentioned, uh, it's going. Uh, the oral arguments will be held on May 15th. Uh, which will be fascinating. I always wonder how it is to be a lawyer arguing in front of a bank panel. I mean, it's not a panel. 
on Bank Court. Yes. Right? Yeah, and I, I think the Fifth Circuit has the largest on Bank sitting, if I'm not mistaken. 16 I see Judge Stark judges. Judge said, yeah, 16 judges at a time. Can um, you guys imagine arguing in front of 16 judges? <laughs> no. No is the answer. Sometimes they have oral arguments in unbanked courtrooms where it, it's just a panel, uh, but the courtroom is an unbanked courtroom. And as an advocate, you stand there and you think, oh my God, these are three of them. Like, imagine they're just encircling mm -hmm. you. <laughs> like, what, what are you, how are you even going to see if somebody wants to ask you a question? Anyway, that's a worry that I don't have for now. No. <laughs> but they will. Of course. No way, FDA. All right. So uh, with that, let's move to our final opinion of the day. And uh, it involves qualified immunity. It's out of the Eighth Circuit. It's called Molina versus St. Louis, city of St. Louis. It is a preview of what's to come next week. We're going to have another short circuit life in Washington, D.C. at Georgetown. Uh, and we will celebrate and mark the publication of uh, a book on qualified immunity and other doctrines that make it difficult to sue government officials. The book is called Shielded, and it is written by the most prolific and respected scholar on qualified immunity in the nation, a UCLA professor, Joanna Schwartz. Uh, she will be uh, at the Short Circuit Life next week, uh, and I assign her a qualified immunity case. So <laughs> she'll talk about that, and um, other guests will be talking about things like municipal liability and uh, blanket immunity for federal officials. So that's a preview of coming up uh, attractions. Uh, Judge Strauss on the Eighth Circuit uh, wrote for the majority. Uh, remember how we talked about the F word? Uh, <laughs> we were promised more profanity. Yes, uh, this opinion has a lot of profanity in it. Uh, not because Judge Strauss is choosing to use profanity in his opinions, but because they're actually very important uh, for the outcome of this decision. Um, so here are the facts. Uh, there is a large protest in St. Louis uh, in 2015, uh, motivated by a police killing uh, of a black man, uh, Mansour Balbay. There are three plaintiffs, uh, two are lawyers. We really are talking about lawyers a lot today. Two are lawyers, and I will get to the third one later, but these lawyers, they are wearing, they are part of the protest. They're wearing bright green hats with the words National Lawyers Guild Legal Observer emblazoned on them. Uh, and many folks would know what the organization actually is, but many folks wouldn't, and that becomes relevant. Um, and one of the, so one of the lawyers, he was just uh, standing there peacefully observing, and the other lawyer was also recording the protest. Um, and during the protest, police launched an armored vehicle known as the bear. And that bear barreled down the street toward the two lawyers and other protesters shooting tear gas chemicals at them. Uh, so that's where the third plaintiff comes in. Uh, his name is Peter Gross, and uh, he is much more aggressive than the other two plaintiffs. Uh, he actually follows the bear on his bicycle and yells, and that's where it becomes complicated for me, he yells, get the F out of my park. So the, the Judge Strauss actually uses the full word, but 
for the purposes of not having to put a disclaimer <laughs> on the web page of the Short Circuit Podcast, I'm just going to say the F uh, out of my park. So he says, get the F out of my park. Uh, and the officers respond to these words and to him following them on the bicycle by launching a tear gas canister that hits him on the hip. So the question before Judge Strauss and the other judges is, does qualified immunity protect the officers who tear gas these three plaintiffs from First Amendment liability? And his answer is counterintuitive for uh, uh, you know, folks who are not familiar with qualified immunity. His answer is that guy who is following police officers on the bicycle and telling them, get the F out of my car, that guy has First Amendment rights, and qualified immunity does not shield officers from um, uh, uh, hitting him. But when it comes to these two other plaintiffs who are standing there peacefully observing the police and who are also recording the police uh, and are being very polite about the whole situation, qualified immunity protects police officers uh, uh, from liability, even though they used excessive force on them. So uh, how does uh, Judge Straw reach that conclusion? So uh, he does this traditional analysis of qualified immunity. Uh, first, whether there is a uh, there's a constitutional right, and second, whether that right is clearly established. So first, is there a constitutional right? Well, perhaps there is a constitutional right to record the police. There is a constitutional right to observe the police, but Judge Strauss says that right, however, is not clearly established, right? Um, so you'd think, oh, come on, that's pretty clear, right? You're standing there peacefully at a protest. Um, they shouldn't be doing this to you. But he says, no, the right is not clearly established. And that's because uh, there is this Supreme Court case, Col Colton versus Kentucky from 1972. And it says that there is no constitutional right to observe the issuance of a traffic ticket. So from there, he says, so observing police conduct really is not expressive, and the right to observe is not clearly established given Colton versus Kentucky. The interesting thing, and it becomes crucial for the dissent, is that there are two Fourth Amendment cases, not First Amendment, Fourth Amendment cases in the Eighth Circuit that plaintiffs cite. And in those cases, uh, first one is Walker. In, in, in Walker, in 2005, the Eighth Circuit says that Qualified immunity does not shield an officer who arrests an individual for silently watching the police encounter from across the street, right? So it seems pretty clear statement. And then there is a second case from 2020, Chestnut, where the Eighth Circuit says, if the Constitution protects one who records police activity, then surely it protects the one who merely observes it. So... How does Strauss distinguish those cases? He says that those are Fourth Amendment cases, that the claims were about Fourth Amendment unreasonable seizure, and therefore qualified immunity uh, shields the officers here. Those are not First Amendment cases. Um, and, um, you know, um, the other interesting thing that Strauss talks about is this idea of the message, right, emblazoned on the head on the hats, National Lawyers Guild Legal Observer thing. So he says, well, maybe that's an expressive message, right? And in that case, then they were exercising their First Amendment right. 
And then he compares that to that famous message, F the draft, right? Again, he uses the full word. I don't. <laughs> uh, on air. On air. <laughs> Many study sessions with Will and me preparing for the finals. I use that word a lot. That's true. <laughs> but so he says, no, that F the draft, that's a clear message, right? So you can see how that's an expressive activity, First Amendment right. But this whole thing about uh, the National Lawyer Guild Legal Observer, he says some people would know what those folks do and would know that it's an anti-protest message, but many won't. So that's not a clearly established right. So at the end of the day, there's some other things in that opinion that I won't go into detail about. But really, his main conclusion here is that the, the right that these uh, two uh, lawyers exercised is not clearly established by observing and peacefully recording the police. But the right that this other third plaintiff exercised was clearly established when he was following them on his bicycle and telling them, get the F out of my park. That was a clear expressive activity and they should have not used tear gas on him. And so qualified immunity does not shield them in that case with that guy. Um, and Judge Benton issues a dissent. Uh, in his dissent, he says, what the heck, right? We have these two cases, Chestnut and Walker, right? And maybe they were Fourth Amendment cases, true. But it doesn't mean that the right to peacefully observe the police was not clearly established with regard to the First Amendment. He says, in order to conclude that there was no reasonable suspicion to seize people in those cases, the court had to determine that the plaintiffs there were engaging in a constitutionally protected First Amendment activity. That's why there was uh, no reasonable suspicion because they were engaging in First Amendment activity. So the court did reach a First Amendment conclusion in a Fourth Amendment case. So he says you should have not distinguished it this way. Uh, the court did determine that there was a First Amendment activity and that's why there wasn't a reasonable suspicion that resulted in a Fourth Amendment violation. So Chestnut and Walker clearly established the right to observe the police. Um, what's really interesting to me about this case is that it shows that judges can use qualified immunity in the most counterintuitive of ways, right? Uh, in this case, uh, qualified immunity shields the officers um, who attack non-aggressive people who are just standing there presenting no threat to the officers peacefully observing. And qualified immunity doesn't shield the, uh, the, the uh, doesn't, uh, 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 and, and qualified immunity uh, allows uh, police, uh, holds police officers, so let me rephrase it again. Qualified immunity um, is not granted to uh, police officers who you could actually argue were trying to defend themselves because the guy was actually on a bicycle following them and screaming aggressive words. So um, uh, we hear from many conservative judges um, that qualified immunity should be at its strongest when it comes to um, 
split-second situations where police officers are in danger. But in this type of a case, the outcome is exactly the opposite. Qualified immunity shields uh, police officers who it shouldn't shield and doesn't shield police officers who it should shield. So it's a very counterintuitive, uh, to my thinking, uh, conclusion. So um, that's... Uh, so uh, to sum up... Yes, please. You can chase the bear... You can curse the bear, but don't watch the bear. And certainly don't poke the bear. Is that, is that what I take away from the case? See, that's, that's what infuriated me about Will. <laughs> when we're in law school, I would be just going on and on and on about stuff, and professor's eyes would be like glazing over, and then he would raise his hand and he'd say, so to sum up, <laughs> and he'd say that, and the professor would say, exactly right. <laughs> so I guess I'm just gonna say that, exactly right. <laughs> well, thank you, Anna. Well, unless anybody else wants to comment on this beautiful qualified immunity case, uh, I think this is a wrap for us. Uh, thank you all so very much for uh, doing the panel. Uh, thank you guys for being here. I know you're really here for Chick-fil-A, but I do <laughs> we do appreciate you sticking around. Um, and uh, listen uh, to this podcast uh, on platforms available near you. <laughs> or whatever it is they say. Thank you. <laughs>